We are in the second week observing this bank of verses, which are part of a larger category, uh, which we'll explore and remind ourselves of in just a moment. But for now, let's read verses 1 through 12, which will get our attention this morning. Romans 14, verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment, verse 4, on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For, verse 7, none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. That is the Christian community exclusively, right? So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment, verse 10, on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Once more, once more, Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you even now as we stand in honor of the reading of your scriptures that you have preserved this word, that you have, unlike the other ancient documents of bygone eras and people and time that were destroyed through warfare and fire, this, your word, you have providentially preserved. Not only is it preserved in writing for us, but you also tell us that not one bit of it will pass away. Your word is eternal. Your word is life. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word lives in us. The word is alive and powerful, able to cut us to the heart like nothing else can. And so, Lord, it is to your word that we give our attention this morning, not to our emotions, which are fickle, not to our energy levels that rise and fall, but to your unchanging word. May you strengthen us by it, shape us by our careful observation of it. May you convict us of sin as we absorb and meditate on it. May you make us into useful and sharp instruments in your hand unto the building of your kingdom until you call us home by the power of your word. Help us accordingly, for this cannot be done with human hands or the wisdom of the words of a 40-year-old man. This can only be accomplished if you grant us the gift 
of your spirit, convicting our hearts, molding us and shaping us, empowering us and reminding us. And so do your work, we beg of you, to the fullest extent that you are able in us today. In Christ's name we pray and ask, amen. May be seated. Uh, you can tell you can tell when something is important to someone by simply listening to what they talk about. Right? You can tell when something is important to someone by just listening to what they talk about. Right? Uh, if you want to know what someone loves, just listen to them talk for a while. If they talk about themselves, You can tell what someone loves. Just listen to them talk. In my family, you will quickly discover my girls love a good book and a hot cup of tea. That's a good day, right? Uh, My son, Pate, loves science and the stars, the physics that govern the universe. He'll talk your ear off. Be careful. But he loves it, clearly. Luke loves Lego, which I discovered that the plural of Lego is Lego. Did you know that? Jake loves fun Laughter, cutting up. Just this morning as I was loading my sacred instrument into the van and, my, and my, my laptop, which is worth more than his life, he was throwing stuff at me and pecking me in the head with little balls of something. I hope it wasn't something organic like, you know. <laughs> but he just loves fun, loves to cut up. Uh, my wife, Leslie, she loves her husband. She's always talking She's always talking to me and about me, right? Daddy needs to fix the broken door. Honey, when are you going to cut the grass? See, she loves me. She's always concerned and talking about me and to me. Now, that's unfair, of course, to my wife. She's, but you get the idea. In the case of the Apostle Paul, he is very concerned with how Christians interact with other Christians. He loves the church. He loves the unity of the saints, and he talks about it a lot. Paul is concerned, if you will, simply how the church treats one another. Here in the closing stages of this letter to the church in Rome, Paul devotes what we have divided up into uh, one and a half chapters to the various aspects of Christian interaction. He begins this treatise that extends to verse 15, or excuse me, verse 13 of chapter 15. He begins this treatise with something of a thematic statement. We've read it multiple times now. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The next 33 verses are explaining what that means. So that's a massive opening statement, which is why last week we didn't even get into the exposition of the passage, we simply attempted to understand this massive opening thematic statement because the next good bit of scripture is related to and expounding upon that idea. The New International Version of the Bible, Romans 14.1, it reads like this, "'Except him whose faith is weak.'" 
accept him with an A, not E-X-C-A-C-C. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Disputable matters. It's good. Uh, Some of you are more familiar and committed to the King James Version, which I grew up with. I have a particular affinity for. It reads this way, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. And the Phillips paraphrase, which is one of the best, if you want something that's very easy to read, but that does not compromise in any way the meaning of the scriptures, J.B. Phillips paraphrase, it's wonderful. Uh, It reads this way, welcome a man whose faith is weak, but not with the idea of arguing over his scruples, his scruples. Well, again, we were introduced to this section last Sunday, and so let us be reminded, there are and were, there will forever be in the church until Jesus comes home, those who are weak in the faith and those who are strong. There are those who are younger spiritually and those who are more mature. 1 John 2 actually speaks of spiritual infants, sons, and fathers. All, as John MacArthur puts it, all on a continuum of growth. So we're all growing, no matter how young, weak, or ill-informed is our genuine faith. We noted last week the importance of this fact. There is no shame in being among the younger or the weaker. No pride in being among the older. No shame in weakness, no pride in strength. There cannot be. Or else we cannot move on to verse 2 of Romans 14. We cannot build on the concept until we embrace in our minds the simple fact there is no shame in being among the weak in faith, so long as it is genuine faith, and there is no pride in being among the strong in faith. Each side must, if you will, lean into and embrace their place in the community in order for this church family that the weak would grow strong and that the strong be useful tools in God's service. Otherwise, to what point is your strength if not to be useful to God, right? So we just broached the subject last week, just dipped our toes in the water for 45 minutes. Uh, by way of introduction, so let us carry on today. If you're taking notes, let's begin number one, weak and strong continued. <laughs> you're saying, I thought we did this last week. No, we have to get this. Weak and strong continued. Listen to a couple of uh, passages with me. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Paul says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Who he's talking to the strong about the weak. We must help them. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, same concept, that is to say mature, grown, established, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And so clearly there are those on the spectrum of spiritual maturity always among the body of Christ. Now, as it relates to Romans chapter 14 and 15, here's the question. Who are the weak? 
What is it that makes someone, spiritually speaking, in this biblical context, by this language, what is it that makes them weak? Without allowing this to be something of an insult. Well, they are members of the Christian community who just do not fully understand grace. What Paul addresses in this big section are called non-moral preferences. We often in the church refer to them as Christian liberties. It is that stuff that is not moral, but it is a matter of navigation. We have to navigate this world. The Bible doesn't say anything about smartphones. So do we have them or do we not have them? Well, it's a matter of Christian liberty. It's a non-moral preference, you see. What age do we give our children smartphones, email addresses, access to the internet? Never. (laughs) Well, Zechariah chapter, no, it doesn't say, right? It's a matter of non-moral preference. Does morals get involved? Do morals get involved in a hurry in these preferential things? Absolutely. So who are the weak? They are those who, who, they cannot enjoy a particular Christian liberty because they are so concerned with breaking a Christian rule. They can't enjoy a particular meal or a particular movie because their conscience is offended by it. Non-moral preferences. Now, in the context of the first century, again, the Jew who is converted, for them, feast days are holy days. And there's a bunch of them in the Jewish calendar. Only kosher foods are acceptable. They are obligated, these Christian Jews, by their conscience, to observe the Sabbath on Saturday, for example, even though Jesus made all days holy, They are condemned by their conscience for eating food that's not kosher, even though Jesus made all foods clean. He did most of his amazing, like many of his amazing miracles on the Sabbath day. And of course, he was resurrected on Sunday, establishing, if you will, a new memorial, a new day of celebration. But the Jew who was converted to Christianity in the first century, and many still today, and others, they they are hung up on the feast days, on the kosher diet, on the holy days. And again, in the first century, for the Gentile, it was all about food offered to idols and how eating that food is symbolic of worshiping the deity. Even though the idol is nothing, so the food offered is nothing, it was all too familiar, too close to their former way of life. Now, we bring this into the uh, the 21st century, For some of you, these liberties revolve around maybe clothing or music. Now don't get me wrong, there is immoral music that ought not be indulged for the Christian. And there is immodest clothing that ought not be worn. Immodest speech that ought not be spoken. We're not talking about that. We're talking about music and clothing that is benign. We're talking about eating and drinking that doesn't cross the line into gluttony and drunkenness. Do we need to grow in what we understand of what is morally acceptable? Yes. But that's not the issue in Romans 14. That was the issue in Romans 1 through 11. The issue in Romans 14 is the principle of the unity of the church. 
What is at issue here is the onus is on the strong to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace in how they interact with the weak. But the strong aren't the only ones instructed, though there is a heavy burden placed on them. So that's the weak, those who, they they cannot get beyond their former way of life, be it Jew or Gentile, heathen or legalistic, They cannot get past their formal way of life and enjoy certain Christian liberties that are within the spectrum of morally acceptable behavior. Who are the strong? The strong are those who simply understand and embrace their Christian liberty. Unlike the young or immature convert, you can enjoy a good song by your favorite, you know, artist, be it, you know, Billy Joel or Pink Floyd or John Mayer, you know, something that speaks beautifully to to the, the ebb and flow of life or creation. Now listen to this. Today, skies are painted colors of a cowboy cliche. I'm going to read it again because Bob's sneezing over my lyrics. (laughs) Trying to do something here, man. Take a Claritin, all right? I love Bob so much. And just to reiterate my affection for Bob, I want you to know something. For two years, my wife and I prayed. Um, <clears throat> before Hillcrest called me to be the next pastor, we prayed together for the next step that God had for us. We knew something was coming. We didn't know what it was. My wife would bring the kids over to the park here in Coolwood. And they would pray for Hillcrest Baptist Church because we knew a few folks here. We knew that it, um, that it wasn't thriving. We knew that the pastor was aging and had health trouble. We just knew. We heard it through the grapevine. And we prayed. We prayed for this church. But we stopped there. And then one day, my phone rang on a random Saturday. And it was Sneezy Bob. (laughs) And I I will never forget that conversation, Bob. This is Bob McCrory. You sounded very mature and very serious. And I thought, boy, this is serious. I got to be a big boy. I got to... Your name was given to us. We wouldn't know if you'd come talk to us. And I got off that phone. I got off that phone, Bob, with you, the phone call. And I told my wife, all right, that's it. Let's go. It's time. We knew. We knew that day. So thank you, Bob, for still being alive and sneezing through my sermons. Mm. All right, let's back, get back to these lyrics. <clears throat> Today, skies are painted colors of a cowboy cliche. And strange, how clouds that look like mountains in the sky are next to mountains anyway. Later on, the song says, you should have seen that sunrise with your own eyes. It brought me back to life. It's beautiful, right? As I read that, your mind probably went on a little journey with me, didn't it? You began to imagine what a cloud in the sky next to a mountain. And you go, yeah, that's right. It is like a mountain, and it's next to a mountain, right? Or the idea of that sunrise, like you're on vacation, you're at the beach, and the sun is coming up because you get up really early and drink coffee on vacation and watch the sunrise like crazy people. And, and like that, the warmth begins to hit your face, right? And you go, oh, yeah, and it's like, and you... you Right? You, you went with me on a little journey through a few lyrics on a song written by a heathen, John Mayer. Love John Mayer's music because of lyrics like that. John Mayer wasn't trying to worship the God of all creation, but he did so in those lyrics because to honor his creation is to honor the one who created it. 
by his, by his amazing creative power and the imagination of his mind to paint the skies. Yeah. He didn't want to. He didn't mean to. But he's worshiping the God of all creation. And see, as a, as a Christian who is not liberated, or excuse me, who is not bound to musical artists who are only labeled Christian, I can enjoy those lyrics and go on that visual journey with him without staining or pricking my conscience. That's an example. So what then are the strong, the mature to do with the weak, the young, the immature? Paul says simply this, proslambano. All right, proslambano. It's a Greek word. It means to accept, but the, the prefix P-R-O-S, pros, it personalizes it. That's why I actually like the King James Version. It says, receive ye. That is to say, you receive him. It makes it personal. When Jesus told the disciples that he has to be arrested and crucified by the Gentiles, Peter proslambanoed Jesus. He took him to his side. He brought him into his person, away from the rest, and he said, no, Jesus, you're our king. They'll never crucify you, which, of course, Jesus responded with, get behind me, Satan, all right? Your concern is for an earthly kingdom. Mine is for a heavenly kingdom. You don't get it yet. Back up, you're wrong. But the point is this. What did Peter do? Peter pulled him into himself. He proslambanoed him, okay? It's an important word. The foundation is built upon this concept. Accept him. This is what the strong is to do with the weak. With the one who is hung up on things that are not moral issues, they are matters of Christian liberty, but they struggle. He is to accept him. He is to take him into himself personally and not do so in order to do what Peter did, which is to correct him. Now, his or her who is, has a weak faith, now you have a responsibility to them. You have a personal duty to them, you who are strong, to be patient with them, to take them and welcome them, to embrace them closely. As opposed to the, the reactive nature of pushing them away. Welcome him, but not as a ruse to argue with him. The Holy Spirit will provide opportunity to correct misunderstanding. The Holy Spirit will soften the heart. The Holy Spirit will speak through his word. You who are strong in the faith can welcome them warmly without compromising and without quarreling about stuff. Somehow in God's economy, you can welcome your weaker brother or sister and you don't have to immediately confront their struggles. They're misunderstandings, and yet you can do so without affirming them. I think we have a hard time with this. The quote-unquote more mature sees a Christian liberty that is, that is not exercised by the younger, and the younger is struggling with that Christian liberty, and they say, I've got to address this. I have to talk to them right away. No, you don't. Don't you trust the Holy Spirit to soften their hearts and inform their minds? Weren't you once young in faith? hung up on certain things that now you can enjoy with a clear conscience? 
Did you, like me, when you were about 16, 17, something like that, throw all of your non-Christian CDs out the car window? Because this was some kind of popular purging. We're going to purge all of our non-Christian labeled CDs. Never mind we're littering, okay? Right? Like how that didn't cross our minds, I don't know, but this was the thing. You're throwing them out the, and it's like a purge. You know, you're burning all of the old satanic books. You're throwing all your old CDs out. I throw some good CDs, man. You were once young in the faith and hung up on certain things, over-amplifying things that did not need to be. Should some of those albums have gone in the trash can? Yeah, not on the side of the road, maybe the trash can. Right, but others, they could have been enjoyed. You were once young in the faith. Don't you trust the Holy Spirit? You don't have to address it. You bring them in to love them. That's the Christian command. Welcome, embrace, and in doing so, maintain unity across the spectrum of Christian liberty within the bounds of moral uprightness. Some can listen to John Mayer and Billy Joel, others can't. Some, some can listen to Pink Floyd and others can't. Like it's too familiar. Like the lyrics and the songs are too close to your old ways of drugs and alcohol and parties and you can't, you can't even enjoy it. It even elicits a little bit of a thirst for those old things again. You can't enjoy it. Others can. Some can enjoy the chosen drama series. Others take exception with any depiction of Jesus. Do not make a graven image. Right? Some can eat a, rear, a near rare steak while others take exception to eating food with seemingly blood in it due to the regulation set forward by the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Some Christians struggle with Christmas trees and the celebration of Jesus' birth in December because he probably was born in like September, right? But instead, at some point in church history, the church co-opted a pagan festival and made it an observation of Christ's birth. And for the weak, bound up Christian, they cannot enjoy that celebration with a tree and with presents. It's too closely associated with something else historically. They can't do it. And so they sit in their homes like misers over the holiday. There are a great number of various cultural issues that are not so much moral as they are preferential. How are we to then get along with one another when we ascribe to what seems like different versions of Christianity? This is the problem. This was a problem in the early church, and it's a problem still today. And Paul really puts a pin on it right here in the next couple of verses. He says, some have matured in freedom, others have not. And the tendency, Paul tells us right there in verse three, is for the the one who is hung up on Christian liberties to look down scornfully on the Christian exercising his liberties. And then conversely, for the mature who understand their liberties to despise and resent the weak, who is getting in the way and condemning them for their liberties. You see it? Read verse three with me. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to judge? Verse two, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. One person esteems a day better than another, verse five, while another esteems all days alike. You see, this is what's happening. The weak condemns the strong as they exercise their liberties. The strong despise the weak as they condemn them. 
So you got one condemning and you got the other one despising and you're getting in the way and you're questioning my salvation. And what is this? Just... This was going on and it happens in the church today. And in my own personal observation as a pastor for 15 years and a church member all of my life, listen, 99% of this that happens in the church is totally subconscious. We're not making these moral judgments on one another consciously. It's just cooked in to our passive way of thinking. So, that's the strong and the weak continued. It's a subject we'll have to revisit again and again as we explore these verses together. But let's move on or else we'll never finish. Number two, let's then talk about the principles of Christian liberty. Remembering, friends, the, the overarching emphasis of this section is unity in the church. Paul's dealt with purity in the church. Purity is assumed. Unity is now forefront. If we're to embrace one another and not simply argue about who is more right on a particular issue, what are the principles that govern free exercise of Christian liberty? And then how do we maintain unity with disparity? Because there will be cases where this is okay for you and not okay for me, and it's not moral, it's preferential, it's a matter of Christian liberty. It will happen. And if it doesn't happen, then you've got a cult, not a church. So this will be the case within Christian community. There will be unity and disparity within the confines of moral uprightness. This is the key. We are not free from the moral obligations of the law. We are not free from the moral obligations of the law. What God commands to be right and good is right and good. And there is an objective correct and an objective incorrect. There is sinful and there is benign. Okay? We are not free from the moral obligations of the law. We are free from the ceremonial constraints that are only relevant to the old covenant which were fulfilled in Christ. Shrimp, for example. Ceremonial. It's not moral. It's ceremonial. You can go have some shrimp on the Sabbath day. Congratulations, right? But a Jew in the old covenant, no shrimp. There was a reason. It was temporary and it's fulfilled in Christ. And so over the next few weeks, we'll explore four big principles in the upcoming sections from verse 1 of chapter 14 to verse 13 of chapter 15, the first of which is this, that that we read, accept one another, but do so with understanding. So if you're taking notes, the first principle, accept one another with understanding. Now we're going to explore what I think, if I remember correctly in my notes, five aspects of that first governing principle found in verses 1 through 12. Accept one another with understanding. We've covered what it means to accept, welcome. We understand there's a duty. We understand there's a distinction. We understand there is and always will be a difference between the weak and the strong, the young and the old. We get that, correct? Now let's understand what it means to do so with understanding. The first aspect of this principle 
is, number one, God is judge. Look at me at verse four. God is judge. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who are you to pass judgment? God is judge. Now, this is complicated, okay? Because we are to judge one another. You are to judge across the aisle, across the table, in discipleship groups, in Sunday school class, privately. You are to judge one another. It's, really, it's, it's a wild concept. Uh, we read it earlier in Galatians. If a brother is caught up in a sin, you who are mature, spiritual, should restore him. That's to say you are to not affirm his sin, but restore him to purity. That's a judgment. That's making a judgment call. 1 Corinthians 5.12 is even more explicit. Paul says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So in one scripture, Romans 14, Paul says, God's the judge, don't judge each other. And in another, Paul says, you are to judge each other. (laughs) Which is it, right? Well, obviously the Bible isn't contradicting himself itself. The, The Paul isn't contradicting himself. It's simple a matter of context. In each case, Paul is distinguishing between the way Christians interact with those inside the community and those outside the community. There is a distinction between those who are Christians and those who are not. And how we interact with them matters. Inside the community, we do not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, Hebrews 10, but we do come together to do what? To spur one another on. To what? Love and good works. All right, next week, seriously, when I pause like that, I want, you know what I'm saying? Like, give me the, we spur one another on to love and good works in matters of objective, spiritual, scriptural mandate, we spur one another on. We judge one another in that we examine ourselves and each other, listen, against Christ's example. Jesus said, I have set an example for you. You do unto others how I have done to you. And he served them in humility, right? So we are to judge ourselves and one another against the example of Christ. And where there is conflict in the life of the redeemed, we challenge and encourage. We spur. The word means poke. We spur each other on to love and good works. When it comes to matters of salvation, however, there is only one judge, God Almighty. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Not to you, to me, right? And every tongue shall confess to God. When it comes to matters of salvation, who is and who is not accepted into eternal bliss and the eternal security of being washed and covered by the blood of Jesus, that's God's business, not yours. Those who are outside, right? So you're not their judge. There's but one judge. See, the weak believer who doesn't understand Christian liberty questions the salvation of the strong who exercises his liberty. And doing so assumes the role of God the judge. 
I don't think your Christianity is legit or else you would do this like I do. You wouldn't eat that. You wouldn't listen to that. You wouldn't watch that. You wouldn't go there. You wouldn't wear that. You must not even be a real Christian. What is he doing? He's judging him eternally on the basis of his salvation. The strong believer then in turn questions the salvation of the weak who is hung up with an underdeveloped conscience and so assumes the role of God the judge. Your Christianity must not be very real either because we are free in Christ from these constraints. You are adding to salvation works. You don't even know what it means to be a Christian. You must not be a real Christian. What are we doing? Assuming the role of the judge. Paul simply says, no, God knows who are his. And I love that phrase. He, he, he makes him able to stand. Regardless of what shortcomings you think you find in one another in the Christian community, God is able to make him stand. Why? Because it is Christ who stands in his place. Not my two feet, which are broken and have carried me into places where I shouldn't go. I stand on the feet of Christ. He did it. God's able to make him stand. You don't, you don't determine it. It's wonderful. This is it. Ready? Do not make matters of liberty into matters of salvation. That's it in a nutshell. Some of you are going, why didn't you just say that 20 minutes ago? We could have been, you know, at lunch by now. Do not make matters of liberty into matters of salvation. So that's the first aspect. God is the judge. The second aspect is fascinating. Obey your conscience. Number one, God is judge. Two, obey your conscience. Look at me at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Look, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So you just got to obey your conscience, right? Simple. Move on. Yeah? No. No, this is tricky. Now, I told you last week, I'm just beginning to... to explore this, I, I, don't, I shouldn't say I'm beginning to explore, I've been exploring this for a while, I think I'm just beginning to, to understand it, and I think I have a, a, a great deal more understanding to go. But this is what I, what I believe, to the best of my ability, uh, the scriptures are teaching us here. Each one is to be convinced in his own mind, which is to say, obey your conscience, and yet, The conscience is informed by the mind. The conscience is informed by the mind. The conscience, that which which makes you feel guilty, is not independent from what you know. MacArthur puts it like this, it is set in motion by the mind. It's set in motion by the mind. Or you might say it is steered So your conscience is steered. Your conscience is a ship. Your mind is the rudder steering the ship. Stop looking at the light. Something just blew up. Don't worry about it. This is not easy, so come on, stay with me. So something offends your conscience, listen, by what you have been taught, by what you have read. Now here's the question. How reliable is your education? Have you been dogmatically informed that a certain day or activity is absolutely anathema? What's your source? 
Is it the unadulterated, contextualized, faithfully taught, spirit-affirmed text of Scripture? If not, you've got to find another source. Unadulterated, contextualized, faithfully taught, spirit-affirmed text of Scripture. This is what is to inform the mind. So is your conscience pricked by something your mind is convinced of because it came directly from the faithful exposition of the Scriptures, or is it some man's opinion about the Scriptures or about a perceived moral issue? The conscience is tricky. It can be over-informed, where that which is not sin is called sin, and it can be under-informed. When it's over-informed, it looks something like what, what we have known in modern vernacular as the teetotaler Christian. It's just one example to help us. This person never drinks alcohol, which is fine, but they also have a hard time being in loving Christian community with anyone who does because they are convinced that to even take a sip is an abomination. But the scriptures don't teach that. But in church history, men have imposed this teaching over and over again as a, as a warning, as a stopgap, as a safe rule. And in many ways it is. You can't get drunk if you don't have any, right? But you turn it from wisdom or liberty into condemnation. The scriptures warn against overindulgence and unquestionably condemn drunkenness, but Paul says a little wine is good for your stomach. The Proverbs say, give a little drink to the one who is sick or gloomy. But the teetotaler has been taught that this is an abomination. Their conscience, therefore, based on that teaching, their conscience pricks them. It condemns them, even at the thought of it. The conscience is set in motion by what it has been taught in the mind. On the flip side, another mind has been reliably informed that drunkenness is no big deal. Some pastor stood in a pulpit and opened a Bible and said drunkenness is okay, and he used a scripture out of context to try to say that it was okay, such as something in Ecclesiastes. It's like, eat, drink, be merry, have fun. Ripped out of context, right? And now that mind is informed that drunkenness is perfectly, perfectly acceptable. Or perhaps that any form of dress is perfectly acceptable. Or that any person, male or female, can be a teaching pastor or elder in the church. And so therefore their conscience is not pricked where it ought to be. It's underdeveloped or underinformed, Overinformed and underinformed. Your conscience ought to condemn you for overindulgence. Your conscience ought to condemn you for immodesty of dress and speech. Your conscience ought to condemn you when you sit under or see a female assuming the roles in the church that scripture affirms are only for men. But the conscience doesn't because it has been under-informed through the mind. Unreliably under-informed. Now, if Paul doesn't mean what I just expressed, what in the world does he mean when he says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind? Does he mean morality is relative? Christianity is subjective? So what you call Christianity is completely opposed to what I call Christianity? Oh, and by the way, there are gross, obvious, moral sins that accompany your version of Christianity. 
And so it's, they're all equally valid. Each one, as long as you're convinced in your own mind, it's all good. Is that what Paul's saying? It can't be, right? It can't be. Because the text of Scripture is replete with instruction about holiness and, and walking away from and not indulging in your former patterns of life that are, that are littered with gluttony and sexual morality and impropriety and drunkenness and anger, right? On and on and on and on. So it cannot be that any version, whatever, it's whatever you're convinced of. It can't mean that. It must mean this. You can have an under-informed or an over-informed conscience. The question is the reliability of that which informs the mind, which then informs the conscience. It's complicated, it's tricky, but it's actually pretty remarkable. An unreliably informed conscience will lead to disharmony and legalism on one extreme or rampant runaway worldliness in the church on the other. Each of you should be convinced in his own mind. The mind, Romans 12, 1 through 2, is to be renewed by the Spirit. That renewed mind then, reliably informed by the whole counsel of God's word, will correct an overactive conscience and it will instruct an underactive conscience. And as such, the liberties exercised are not on the extremes, but they're brought within a range of behavior that makes unity, peace, welcome, patience possible within the Christian community. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, we don't have time to do the rest of this. So, I'm not even going to try. We'll pick it up here next week. Listen, friends, what, what are we talking about? We are talking about the unity of Christian community. And we're not talking about doctrine here. That's chapters 1 through 11. We spent some... 30 some odd weeks on those chapters. This is now what we have been taught put into practice. If you're unfamiliar with chapters 1 through 11, you've got to go back and read them. If you were not here for the 30 some odd sermons in chapters 1 through 11, you should go back and listen to them. Because now we've moved on, friends, to putting this into practice. This is what this looks like exercised in the church. If you want to know who we are and what we are about, you've got to go back a few chapters because now we are looking to faithfully put it into practice. Because listen, we are not Christians in theory, we are Christians in practice. It's not just theoretical mumbo jumbo. It's the everyday life. It's the everyday nitty gritty. It's how you interact with one another. And Paul is exceptionally concerned with that. I have long been burdened by the reputation the church has in the world. I grew up here in the South, right? Uh, as, a, as a young man in my 20s, and I was exploring uh, leading worship and wanting to uh, do a good job at that, I had particular heroes of the worship-leading variety, and, and one of them, one of them really let me down. He, um, he had an affair with one of his bandmates' wives and hid it from everyone. It went on for years, and then when it was finally exposed, it was 
all over the news, and, and I just sat in my office and just grieved. I grieved this guy who I looked up to. I, li- I, I listened to what he said. I modeled his behaviors. I grieved my own sense of perception and discernment. Well, if I could look up to this guy who was living in overt sin, what does that say about my wisdom? I'm an income poop, clearly, you know? And once I, got the, once I got past my own personal grief, then I was grieved. This is in the news. And we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be pure and holy and peaceable and loving and kind, but, but, but pure, pure. The sins that, that rage in the background in our political sphere of unredeemed politicians, we expect that. We expect this stuff from the White House or whatever else. We expect to find evidence of inappropriate tax whatever or you know, insider trading on the behalf of politicians, <coughs> sexual malfeasance, drunkenness and nonsense. Well, yeah, they're following the course of the prince of the power of the air, Romans 1, right? Ephesians 2. We're supposed to be different. And we're not supposed to be different because of some kind of like, we're better. We're supposed to be different because on the back of our jersey is the name of our Savior. And everywhere we go, we represent him. And so I am still grieved on a regular basis by by the news that comes out from the church. And it circulates within the rest of the world. how do we avoid putting more black marks on the reputation of our Savior? How? Romans 14. Okay? That's why we're here. That's why we're doing this. So I encourage you to be patient, friends. Because the Christian community accurately lived out, builds up and brings glory to the name of our Savior. The Christian community judging each other or having rampant sin running amok brings dishonor to his reputation. Let it not be so of us, but let us commit to the exercise of the mind so that we can build up and glorify his name. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we, we do humbly ask you that as we explore these verses, Here in Romans, this clear instruction about how the church is supposed to act, treat each other, look and feel. I just ask that you would help us. Because you know, we're just, we're weak. We struggle. And so help us and teach us such that we are exceptionally concerned with the reputation of our Savior. And that our behavior amongst ourselves when exposed to the light of day, would do nothing but bring you honor and glory. We love you. We trust you. We ask for your help in Christ's name.